Welcome to the Abbott Loop Community Church Podcast. Enjoy this message from Mark Drake. Good morning, everybody. The last three weeks have really been some of the best teaching that I personally have ever heard. Uh, when Josh started three weeks ago on the way God meant it to be, to go all the way back to the garden and understand what God intended, and I just, I was, I, I personally was deeply moved when he talked about the fact that whether we agree or disagree about all of the specifics about women's roles, it's not sin. And, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to listen to that podcast. It's just, it's really, really good. Uh, the ultimate issue is not that we agree on every single little thing. We're not going to. We only know in part. We only see in part. But the day is coming when he is going to straighten us all out. And, uh, and I know that... Uh, I know that my entire family is praying that day will come fast for me. <clears throat> when Rick shared two weeks ago on learning to read the Bible the right way, I personally have listened to that podcast three times now. I've taken notes. I've sent that to the leaders that we work with in Asia and Africa and South America because that 33 minutes was some of the most eye-opening. Listen, if all you ever know about how to read the Bible you get out of that 33-minute teaching Rick did two weeks ago, you will be well-equipped to read and understand the Bible. And then last week, uh, Gretchen Humphrey, who's relatively new with us, uh, just, just knocked it out of the park. There was no doubt about it. And it was, it was awesome because Jesus did change everything. Uh, not just in the issue of sin uh, and, and seeing God as Father, but he changed uh, the, the way that people saw, not how God saw. God's always seen women the same way. When he made them in the garden, the Bible is very clear because he said that my image would be shown in the earth, I must make them both male and female. Um, and uh, so it, what she shared last week was really outstanding, and I'm thinking about my book. Could you hand, I'm sorry, Josh, uh, could you hand me that? Um, the, I, the book, uh, The New Covenant Role of Women in Leadership is, is the book that I wrote that came out just a few weeks ago. We were in Asia uh, for the release of it there and for the publishing of it there and then teaching on it, and uh, one of the things that that we talk about in this, in this book is to understand that Pentecost was not just the sending of the Holy Spirit, but Pentecost was also the liberation day for women. Now, I'm not talking about women's lib. That's a whole different thing. We can debate that later. But the liberation day for women, and the reason there had to be a liberation day is not because God changed the way he looked at male and female roles at all but because the way that the first century Jewish rabbinical teaching had so twisted the original giving of the law uh, through Moses that when Jesus came, he had to completely uh, go against much of what was considered to be right in those days. Uh, many of the things that Jesus did that Gretchen spoke about last week were scandalous. Not because they were wrong, but because the rabbinical teaching in the first century had gotten all out of whack. 
There are so many of the things that Jesus and his men were accused of doing wrong or being blasphemous or breaking the, 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 the law that in fact uh, had been added by first century rabbinical teaching. Now, in, in, in my book, I talk about the first temple Jewish philosophy and the second temple Jewish philosophy. And uh, it's important for us to understand that because the, the first temple that Solomon built was destroyed during or beginning in the, uh, the Babylonian captivity. The second temple uh, was originally rebuilt by Nehemiah and Ezra. You know those stories. And then Herod, uh, in, uh, uh, just before Jesus came, added on and, and enlarged the temple. But the second temple first century Jewish rabbinical teaching was based on a, a tremendous fear, a fear that, um, have we started the clock back there? Because I desperately need that countdown clock if we can get that going. Dear Jesus, help us right now in Jesus' name. All right, that the, second, the second temple first century rabbinical teaching went way beyond that it, it was in that time period of the first century Jesus' day where rabbis pharisees sadducees had added hundreds of additional rules and laws that were not part of the original giving of the law the old testament had no problems at all with deborah rising up anointed by god and leading the nation the old testament didn't have any problem with that the problem was that in the first century, the Roman Empire was spreading Greek philosophy throughout the Roman Empire, and the Greek worldview was so contrary to God's worldview, the godly worldview, the rabbis were so afraid that the Jews were going to lose their identity to Greek ways of thinking that they, out of fear, begin to add all of these additional rules and laws. So there's places where, in 1 Corinthians, where Paul quoting someone else, read the book, you'll see that, or come at 4 o'clock today and you'll hear it, but quoting someone else said, as the law says, the law never said women stay silent. In fact, we have all kinds of Old Testament uh, illustrations of, of women being leaders, judges, all sorts of things. But in the first century, the rabbis were so afraid that Greek thinking was going to overtake Jewish culture that they added all of these things. So uh, 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 Jesus' coming was not to change uh, the way God saw women, but it was to confront the way men saw women. And uh, when Rick shared two weeks ago, it was tremendous. Uh, just, and I keep saying 33 minutes because, you know, I could take an hour and 33 and still wouldn't say everything I'd want to say. But he packed so much into that 33 minutes that you and I need so that we can read the Bible correctly. And he made a comment that I know you've heard me say, and, and, uh, but that's because I heard him say it. Uh, so if, if you don't like it, blame it on him. But the... the <laughs> The important thing when we read the Bible is to understand that the Bible was not written to us. The Bible was written to whatever group of people 
during the time period that that letter was written. When Jeremiah was written, it was written to the Jews who were just about uh, going, they, they were just prior to them being overtaken and then after they were overtaken in captivity. It was not written to us. However, it was written for us, which means that when we read the book of Jeremiah or any of those uh, Old Testament books, that we need to have an understanding of the history of who that letter was actually written to or the prophecy was actually given to, then we need to be able to draw the principle out of it. The principle is eternal. The specific instructions may only be temporary. And it's the same way with the New Testament. And Rick, again, gave us an excellent series of examples about that, that there are commandments given in the New Testament that were temporary and localized based on culture. They were not to us, but they were for us, and in every single one of them, there are principles. The, 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 the writing about not eating meat offered to idols and all that sort of thing doesn't apply to us today, but there is a principle there. There is a principle there about how we treat our brothers and sisters who see things a little differently. So... Come at 4 o'clock, we're going to be talking a lot more about that. And the whole point of those 4 o'clock sessions is to try to give a response to any question that you have about this issue of women's roles and how we should interact in the body of Christ. But on the day of Pentecost, something incredibly amazing, wonderful happened. We're all aware of the coming of the Holy Spirit. However, women's, uh, the, the Pentecost was truly a woman's liberation moment. For God made a declaration from the Old Testament that he fulfilled on the day of Pentecost that should lead us and give us understanding on how God views women. Let's read this. This is in Acts chapter 2. You know this story. But Peter is now, the Holy Spirit has fallen on 120 men and women. Jesus' mother was in that upper room, that upstairs room, and so she was filled with the Spirit. Mary spoke in tongues, says they all did, and Mary was there. In the first service, I said, be a good Catholic and do what Mary did. She got filled with the Holy Ghost. You know, the word Catholic means universal. When you add Roman Catholic, now you're talking about a, a different group of churches, but the word Catholic means universal. So we're all part of the universal body of Christ. We just may not be Roman Catholic, but Mary was there. Many women were there. And think about it, that on the day of Pentecost, over 3,000 people responded to the salvation message of Peter, and they were baptized. They were taught and discipled. Who do you think did that? There were 120 men and women, and they discipled those people. They baptized those people. Uh, they did all of that because of this one great declaration, Acts 2, verse 16. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Peter now is quoting Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on who? All people. No gender issue here. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I'm in the dream, dream dreams place in my life, and I'm happy about it. Now listen, now listen to these words. How many believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? Do you believe that? How many of you believe that God didn't just inspire the mega thoughts, but he inspired the actual words in their original context? You believe that? Then listen to these words. Even on my servants, 
both men and women. Now, Joel did not, I'm sure, understand that a few hundred years before when he prophesied it. But in Peter's day, to stand up and quote this, when the, 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 the culture around him saw women as equal to cattle, they were owned by their men. Women were not allowed to testify in court. Women in most places were not allowed to get any education whatsoever. Women were not allowed to speak to men outside of the home unless they were part of their immediate family. There was never a conversation between men and women outside of their immediate family. Women were not allowed to do that. And in my book, I document all of this and show you the proof and the evidence of that from a historical point of view. So for Peter to get up and quote this and to say, uh, God says that as of today, you must see it his way. And his way is that both men and women are my servants. And then he goes on, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they, 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 men and women will prophesy. Now in Joel's day, the inclusion of women would not have been a big deal. Because throughout the Old Testament, we see God using women time and time and time again. But it would have been very controversial on the day of Pentecost because of the different thinking now of the rabbinical teachers in the first century. But what was scandalous in Joel's day was the idea that God was going to put the, the, the Holy Spirit inside of human beings. That was the thing for Joel that would have been uh, just incomprehensible, that the Spirit of the living God could actually live inside of frail human beings. But that, in fact, is the truth of the New Covenant. Now, the fulfillment, for us to understand the complete fulfillment of Pentecost, we have to understand that it is both this idea of the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of us and that both men and women will speak God's words to the nations and to one another as the Holy Spirit inspires them to do. So this was a fulfillment of both of them. But to, to understand how scandalous this was, you have to understand what the rabbis were teaching. And again, in my book, I give you many, many quotes and where they're found from rabbinical teaching in the first century. Let me just read two of them. This is one. If a, woman gives his if a man gives his daughter a knowledge of the law, capital L, it is as though he taught her lechery. Another word for lechery is prostitution or sexual immorality. And yet in Moses' day, his teaching was, take your children and when they wake up in the morning, teach them the law. When they sit down to eat, teach them the word of God. When they go to bed at night, teach them the word of God. And yet in the first century, rabbis were saying, no, 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 only the boys. Only the boys. Teach the boys, can't teach the girls. In fact, they go on to say, and this is another quote which you can uh, follow up to show that I'm not just making this stuff up, this is really true. It is better, quote, that the words of the law should be burned than that they should be given to a woman. This is the culture Jesus was born into. This is the culture that Paul lived in. And as a pharisaical teacher, one of the most brilliant thinkers of his day, this is what he had been taught all of his life to believe. But when the Holy Spirit invaded his heart, 
He then made the bold announcement, there is therefore now no difference between man and woman as far as God's plan and intention. As there is no Jew and Gentile, there is no male and female. Say, wait a minute, there are differences between men and women. Sure, and there are genetic differences between Jews and Gentiles. But as far as God's determination to use people as his instrument, Paul had to undergo a radical transformation from what he had been told all of his life. Now, if you're taking notes, and I hope that you are, here's the time to write down something very important. We'll go over this more in the 4 o'clock session, but what I want to share with you right now is something that will be added to what Rick talked two weeks ago to help you read the Bible correctly, and here, here it is. The model clarifies the meaning. The model clarifies the meaning. Here's what I mean by that. Words, an individual word, does not have its own one singular meaning. And we use this in everyday conversation all the time. When we come to the Bible, for some unknown reason, this just flies right out of our mind, and we don't think. But in our everyday conversation, we know that a word does not always mean the same thing. It takes on the meaning of the way it is used or its context or the way it's modeled. If you want to know what words meant to the early disciples, read the book of Acts and see how they acted. And the way they acted will give you the meaning. Now, here's what I'm talking about. If I were to say to you the word sharp and then say, what do I mean? Tell me, what do I mean? What do I mean? Sharp, what do I mean? Well, you don't have enough information. So I know what sharp means. It means you cut yourself with a knife. Okay, if I say to you, cut something, and I say the word sharp, you're immediately going to think what? A knife. But if I say to you, sharp, now eat it, what am I talking about? Fish, cheese, Right? How many like mild cheddar cheese? Linda, my wife, raise your hand. How many are like me and you like sharp cheddar cheese? See, more hands, see that? But, but wait a minute, if I say sharp, eat it, and you stick a knife in your mouth, we got a problem. Well, we don't have a problem, you got a problem. I'm fine, right? <laughs> there you go. You would think jalapenos, right? Absolutely. All right. If I say trunk, what do I mean? Well, I'm not sure. I need more information. I need a context. Model that for me, okay? Trunk. I put all my clothes in it. Now, do you know what I'm talking about? Trunk, right. But what if I say trunk? Now, breathe through it. What am I calling you? An elephant, sorry, no, no poundage insinuated there. I apologize. But what if I say trunk, cut it down? Tree. See, it's the same word, but the way it's modeled, if, if I say trunk, I'm going, Linda, I'm leaving, I'm going out to take care of some trunks, and I've got a chainsaw, I'm modeling the meaning of that word. She looks at the model, she knows what I'm talking about. So when we read these things in the Scripture, we then need to do our best to model or to find the model 
in the Scripture. So let's talk about some of the models. Now, we have these two verses, one in Corinthians about women staying silent, one in 1 Timothy, which he was living in Ephesus at the time, about women staying silent. Now, let's look at some models. For example, the most frequently used model as far as women's roles uh, is a, a married couple, Priscilla and Aquila. Now, let's take a look at how they modeled the role of a woman in, in this New Testament situation. So, we're going to read their story starting here in Acts 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Remember the city Corinth. Corinth and Ephesus are the only two places where Paul wrote instructions about whether women could or could not teach men, should or should not speak up in a service, in a church gathering. So remember Corinth, and remember that Timothy lived in Ephesus. So we're always dealing with these two. By the way, the other cities that he wrote to gave no instructions about these things. You say, yeah, but they could have read it in the others. No, they couldn't, because there was no way to print it. And by the way, less than 5% of the population of the Roman Empire in the first century could read. So when an apostle wrote a letter and sent it to a church or churches, he had to find somebody who could do what? Read. I mean, that, that changes everything. Think about that for a minute. You had to find some. I mean, if we had an apostle sending us teaching letters here, who only spoke French, so he had to write it in French, what would we have to do? We'd have to find somebody that can read French and help us understand that. So it was a similar situation. So listen to this. After this, Paul and, and, and left Athens, went to Corinth. There he met a Jew, Jew, named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, the current Caesar at that time, or earlier, had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Drop down to verse 11. So Paul stayed for a year and a half in Corinth, teaching them, Priscilla and Aquila, and the other people who were coming to Christ, the word of God. Then drop down a little bit further to verse 18. Paul stayed on in, in Corinth for some time time. Now, we know by the previous uh, verses that the sometime was how long? A year and a half, absolutely. Context gives us that information. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Verse 19, they arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. So we have Priscilla and Aquila for at least a year and a half in Corinth, and now we have them moving with Paul, and he leaves them in Ephesus. The two places, the two places where in Paul's letters to these two places, he makes reference about a woman's role in teaching and in leadership. You with me so far? Now, let's find out how they modeled what Paul taught. Verse 24, same chapter, 18. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. 
That's where Priscilla and Aquila were. Paul had already left. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scripture. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor, taught and taught about Jesus accurately, although he only knew about the baptism of John. Meaning, as best we can figure this out, that he was in the area, uh, the, the area around Jerusalem when John was teaching and baptized. He believed John's teaching that the Messiah was coming and John's announcement that this man Jesus was the Messiah. He was apparently baptized by John or with that group. However, he left that area before the death and resurrection and the day of Pentecost. You with me so far? So what he went around teaching to the Jews in the synagogues was that Jesus was the Messiah and you needed to get baptized to prepare yourself for receiving the Messiah. But he didn't understand the death, resurrection, and sending of the Spirit yet because he had already left. So he began to speak, verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila, oh, here's something interesting. Earlier, it was Aquila and Priscilla, but here it's Priscilla and Aquila. We'll come back to that. They invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Now, listen to these words. How many believe the Holy Spirit inspires words? But what do they mean, all right? Now, they had already heard Paul's teaching in Corinth, they, Priscilla and Aquila, and in Ephesus. The two places where we have these controversial, uh, hard to understand verses, supposedly hard to understand. Actually, they make perfect sense. If we had lived back then, we would not be confused because we would have understood both the context and the culture of what was going on. So how did they model? With Paul's blessing, how did they model? Well, they heard Apollo's teaching. They, Priscilla and Aquila, invited him to their home they explained the way of God to him more adequately. Now, here's an interesting grammatical issue. Some will ask, well, why aren't there women in the New Testament who have been given titles? Well, Phoebe in Romans 16.1 is called a deacon in the church in Centuria, which is a suburb of, was a suburb of Corinth. However, the word deacon was never used as a title. The original seven men back in Acts 6 who were originally chosen, Stephen, Philip, and five other guys, when you read the text, they're never referred to as deacons. It just says we need some guys with faith and wisdom to make sure that all the widows get an equal share of food every day. They're not even called deacons. Later on, several years later, when Paul writes to Titus and Timothy, then he says, if you're going to make someone a deacon, and then he uses the term there. But in Romans 16:1, Phoebe, a woman, is called a deacon in the church just outside of Corinth. But the reality is, the New Testament rarely ever uses titles in the way we think. There's no reverence. There's no professors, there's no doctors of divinity, and I'm not knocking education. I am knocking titles, I think. But there, there's no, there were no titles. There were descriptive terms that told you what a person did, 
Linda and I recently encountered a plumbing problem. Some of you know about that, and those that don't, you just consider yourself fortunate. But, uh, but you would not go to, well, I was going to say Yellow Pages. Lord, that shows how old I am, right? Sheesh, man, oh, man. You wouldn't go to Yelp and, 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 and look up people titled The Plumber Bob, The Plumber George. You would look up George Smith, A Plumber, because it's not a title, it's a description that he plums really well. And that's what we want. Now, let me ask you a question. Is there a difference? When you think about this, is there, is there a difference between saying the Apostle Paul or the way he wrote it, Paul, an apostle? See, there's a difference. It's not a title. It's a description of the gifting of God. Now, those descriptions are important because when someone stands up here who is a prophet, we want to be able to, put, to release our faith that they're sharing with us a word from God. So we will say, let's invite Eleanor or somebody else who, who prophesies, who is a prophet. They do more than just prophesy. They are a prophet because that describes what they do. But titles are rarely ever given. And by the way, it might be because Jesus said, don't do it. And I quote, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over others, and their high officials exercise authority over you, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now, I'm not saying don't use the word apostle. I'm saying use it to describe we have apostles in this church. This church was founded by an apostle. It has been aided over the years by many gifted apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, all of those things. And that helps us define and what to expect from people. But we're not talking about titles. So when we say, well, there aren't any women in the, church, in the New Testament that are given a title. There aren't men either. That's just not the way they spoke. Now, there are two, the two most common titles or descriptions that the Apostle Paul uses are, are these two things. One is when he names someone and then says, and the church in their house. Now, this is used by the apostolic writers frequently, where they will call someone's name and then say, and the church that meets in their house. Now, here's an interesting thing. When you read scholarly writings, you will find that most scholars agree that when Paul or the other apostles point out, they, 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 they uh, name a man and then say, and the church in his house, most scholars will agree that Paul is referring to that man as the pastor or the leader over that group who meets in his house. But there's almost a dozen places where Paul mentions a woman and then says, and the church who meets in their house. Well, it would be completely inconsistent to say, well, if it's a man, then he's the pastor. But if it's a woman, she just sets a nice table. 
look, these are things I used to believe. So I, you know, I mean, these, I'm, this is a struggle for me to come through all of this. By the way, the most controversial and difficult verses on this subject are found in 1 Corinthians. Well, guess who was pastoring the church that wrote the letter that originally started all this for the Apostle Paul? Chloe and the church that met in her house. A woman. It was a woman and the church that met in her house, a woman who led a group of people who sent a letter to Paul and as Rick so clearly told you two weeks ago, when you read uh, letters like 1 Corinthians, remember, it's like listening to one half of a phone conversation. Because 1 Corinthians 7.1 says, Now for the questions you wrote me about. The only problem is we don't know the specific questions. We know the answers, but we don't know what the questions were. So we have to be able to compare other verses from other letters that have similar meaning so that we have a broader understanding of what is being discussed here and goes around. Another thing that I think is very important for us to realize, and again, virtually all scholars agree, that when Paul and Barnabas were originally sent out in Acts 13 on what we refer to as their first missionary journey, it says that the leaders there laid their hands on Barnabas and Saul. Saul was Paul's Jewish name. Paul was his Roman name. He was unique in that he was a freeborn Roman Jew. Not very many of them in those days. When he started traveling in Asian areas, he went by his Roman name Paul so that it was not a stumbling block to some of the Gentiles. In the same way that he did a lot of things for the Jews that he didn't really believe in, but he did them because it was just okay to do them. Uh, but when Paul, uh, or when, uh, when, when Barnabas and Saul are first sent out on their f- first missionary journey, the first two times they're mentioned, it's mentioned as Barnabas and Saul. But every time after that, it's mentioned as Paul and Barnabas. And virtually all scholars agree that that is a grammatical rule showing that the leadership transitioned from Barnabas being the lead man to Paul being the lead man. Well, let's take a look at Priscilla and Aquila. The first two times their name is mentioned, it's mentioned as Aquila and Priscilla. The next five times, it's Priscilla first and Aquila. Well, if we're going to be consistent in the way we read and interpret the Bible then I think it's, it behooves us to believe and see or say that Priscilla's gift was acknowledged as the leading teacher. They both taught, but she had a leading teaching gift. How they worked that out on a day-to-day basis, we don't know, except love becomes the rule. The second title that's given, and you'll find this over a dozen times in Paul's letters, are the words, fellow workers. When Paul refers to apostolic men that worked alongside him, he refers to them again and again as fellow workers, which, by the way, literally means extremely close and in union together for a job. Well, he also, in several occasions, mentions women 
and calls them my fellow workers. He refers to just as many women that way as he does men. So now we've seen that uh, in, in cases like uh, Priscilla and Aquila, that Priscilla did teach. Apparently, they got along. There's no evidence that they finally divorced before the book of Acts was over. But we know that their ministry was extremely important. And remember, their ministry was extremely important in the two cities where the, quote, controversial verses were written in Corinth and Ephesus. Now, what I wish we had time to take a look at is the culture of goddess worship in the first century because the culture of goddess worship affected every area of literally everybody's life. So the reason that the, that the apostles wrote things like, I urge the women to not wear silver, gold, or pearls or to braid their hair. What's wrong with that? Well, there is something about that that you need to know. And come at 4 o'clock and I'll tell you what it is. Now, but it ruled their life. Now, the last major thing that I want to touch on is this. And that is the importance of the letter to the Romans, the rare ability to read in a woman named Phoebe. Less than 5% of the people of Paul's day could read. So when apostles wrote letters and sent them around, they had to find people who could read and read well. Obviously, because they would be sending people carrying the letter to read as they read the letter to people who probably had never heard a lot of this teaching before. What do you think a lot of those people started doing as the letter was being read? Asking questions. Oh, excuse me, could you back up a couple of lines? I'm not sure I got that. Could you explain what that means? Well, the book of Romans is important because it's the only letter that we have that Paul wrote to a group of churches where he had never been. All the other letters were written either to churches that he planted or to people like Timothy and Titus that he had personally discipled. But he had never been to Rome yet. But he wrote this letter, huge letter, amazing letter, where he lays out in great detail his gospel so that when he did get to go to Rome, they would already understand what he taught. But he had to find somebody who could take the letter and do what? Read it. Well, when we get to the last chapter of Romans, we find out that the somebody that he found was named Phoebe. It was a woman. Make a long, dangerous trip from Corinth or Centura, which is where she lived, just outside of Corinth, all the way up to Rome. Very dangerous. No doubt she took men to protect her and to help her along the way. Very dangerous trip. When she got there, she read the letter, no doubt read it many, many times. And as she read the letter to people who had never heard Paul's teaching before, what do you think people started doing? Asking questions. Now, let's be honest. Do we really believe that Paul would have done that and then instructed Phoebe. Now, Phoebe, when they start asking you questions, make sure you tell them that you can't answer them because you're a woman. <laughs> now, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I know that's, it, that sounds silly. I'm not trying to be funny, but I mean, it, 
it, it, it is. It is. <laughs> it is. It, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. Now listen. Listen to the way Paul speaks about Phoebe and what he tells these people whom he's never met in Rome how they should treat her. Romans 16, 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon, wow, in the church in Centuria, suburb of Corinth. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been a great help to many people, including me. Now, as Rick pointed out, so clearly, two weeks ago, if you go ahead and read the rest of this chapter, Paul mentions 11 women. He mentions 11 women whom he honors by putting them in this letter. We need the Lord to help us. How many believe in the law of gravity? Do you believe in the law of gravity? How many believe the law of gravity comes and goes? Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. You need to study more in school if you believe that, young man. <laughs> Who do you think I'm pointing at? I'm pointing <laughs> Not pointing at the engineer sitting behind you, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> I believe in the law of gravity. However, Linda and I just flew in on a plane, I'm not exactly sure what it weighed, but it's something like 50 tons. And that plane did something that is not legal to do with the law of gravity. It took off and soared over 30,000 feet for many, many hours. Because we were both in middle seats. We, it was a long flight. The guy beside me was six foot seven. I felt bad for him. I had to lay hands on him just so he could unfold himself and get out of the seat. But you say, how is that possible? The law of gravity says you can't take something that big and put it up that high. Oh, there must be more to the story. There must be more to the story. There is. There's the law of lift, the law of thrust. There are other factors that have to be added in. A lot of us will be going to the state fair this summer. If you go to the state fair and you see some little child walking around crying because the balloon that mommy bought him suddenly took off when they let go of it and instead of falling down, which is what the law of gravity would make it do, it flew up in the air. You don't say, oh, the law of gravity has stopped working. You think to yourself, there must be some more to this story. What is there more to the story? Helium, which I really wish I would have brought a balloon with helium and had Josh breathe it and then share something with us. I would have just thoroughly enjoyed that. I, I'll have to remember that the next time. There's more to this story. Here's what I'm saying to you. When you see Priscilla and Aquila, when you see Phoebe, when you see over a dozen women that Paul refers to as my fellow workers in the gospel, and then we read this story or we read these verses, women be quiet, we have to say there's more to this story. There's more to this story. Amen.
Thanks, Mark. Excellent. The Holy Spirit, Jesus came, broke something loose. The Holy Spirit's pouring into our life. And there's what he's doing is huge evidence of where we're going. Just remember, the curse was bad, not the model. That's right. That's right. The model is what the Holy Spirit's doing in and through us yes. and where he's taking us. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this message, please connect with us at abbotloop.org and like us on Facebook. Services in Anchorage, Alaska are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. We hope to see you soon.